Hello and welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather. Political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm pretty um, glad I left the late party. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Oh boy. Uh, I don't know. That went real bad. I don't real really quick. know what. <laughs> I don't know what to what to focus on really. Um, I mean, obviously, the, this week we had uh, Rebecca Long Bailey fired from her cabinet position for retweeting an article that was an interview from with Maxine f- Peake. F- from a fringe conspiracy magazine known as the oh, Independent. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've probably all talked about this, uh, talked talked all this out. Um, I was particularly impressed by the way that the Independent condemned itself really denounced really denounced that uh that a cabinet minister a a shadow cabinet minister would put themselves in the position of lending support to such a disgusting anti-semitic smear published in their own paper Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, i don't i don't (laughs) fully know I, i feel like every single I feel like this is managed opposition now at this point. Yeah. I feel like there can't be any non-deliberate... This can't be any non-deliberate attempt to just drive me, in particular, insane. <laughs> because you can't live like... I can't live... You can't like pay attention to this stuff and live like it. You can't have papers denouncing their own interviews as no. anti-Semitic. You can't have... Um, you, you can't have, like, Starmer doing all this stuff about anti-Semitism and then saying that Black Lives Matter is just a, um, moment. a group huscule. Was it a group huscule or a grouplet? A um, some kind of minimising term. Yeah, a, a moment. And you can't... Well, you can, <laughs> but it can't, it can't last. And all I keep thinking is, wow, Corbynism broke the civil society of this country completely, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> just broke it in two. And... They're swiveling their eyes back and forth, trying to work out which way to go on any given issue, and they're just they're just letting instinct guide them, which, as it turns out, is just to kill the left. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with them. But I'm the thing is, we've got a long time till the next election. But you know, I'll be damned if I'm voting Labour in the next couple of years. Yeah, it was pretty good. With uh, I mean, I, I've I've felt like this maybe for a few months now, but I saw that Luke Akehurst is going for an NEC seat, Luke mm-hmm. the Nuke, mm-hmm. and suddenly felt just like, yeah, good, good for him, <laughs> go for it, yeah. take it. Like I just want it at the moment. I just want it kind of robbed of all of its potency. I want them, I want them all in there when it collapses. I think it's kind of like you know one you of those want Viking to lure raids all of the worst one of those people Viking in the Labour Party into a house and then have it collapse. One of those Viking raids, and uh, I'm outside, and I lure everybody into a broad church, yes. and then I shut the doors and set it on fire. <laughs> yeah, that's how, um, that, that would that would be a positive. I would, I would, I would quite like it because because I mean, ultimately, like if you're thinking about like how you are as a human being, how you mm. relate to a discourse, like there is no discourse. This isn't anything. No, 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 like, not at all. You can't reason with these people. You can't no. get them to hear you. Well, that's the you thing. Can't, it's like, um... You can't even you can't even shout into the ether and prove like prove them wrong because it doesn't matter. It's not a matter of it's not a matter of that anymore. Maybe it probably wasn't ever, but. It's literally only a matter of their their kind of group solidarity, and you know, we have that as well. Mm-hmm. That's what it boils down to. It don't boil down yeah. to arguments. It boils down to to that kind of power. It's it's 
it's it's distressing to have to think in those terms because you start to sound very fash. <laughs> but I I can't deny the the what's happening in front of my eyes, which is a lot of people who should have been gone, mm. who should have been out of public life years ago, mm-hmm. just stick around. Yeah, just stick around. Yeah, mm. I'm like, oh, it's yeah, gross, horrible, disgusting, you... grotty party. It's like, it's. I've, I've, the more it's like, as it's like, I think like last episode, I was like, I have nothing but respect for people who want to stay and fight. Um, but you know, there doesn't seem to be that much fighting, to be honest. And also, there's a, you got a, like, there's a thing that I think Corbin and a lot of them didn't even understand is that while you think you're arguing with these people over policy movements and ideas, they don't think you're human. They, yeah. Do not also, care. like, what to what extent? I mean, if those arguments did happen, they happen behind closed doors, which mm. is part of it. Yeah. Like, if you had those arguments, like, if Corbyn and McDonnell personally were having those arguments with people on the right of the party, it was behind closed doors and did not have any bearing mm. on the institutional and political position of, of the people who they were arguing with. Yeah, and so, you just see what happens what, when, when what, we have you, when we have all the power. When we had all the power in the Labour Party, well, in theory, um, they they were they still rather, they wanted to burn it all down. They'd rather they'd always rather burn everything down than ever ever allow the left to win, and yeah. that's not going to change. If anything, it's shown that it's just going to get worse and it's going to get more virulent. So, mm. I, what what do you think they're going to do? They're not going to fucking help you. They're never going to they're never going to come round to your way of thinking because you're a monster in their eyes. You have to, you have different politics to them. Like yeah. that's that has been the key like the key thing of the last few months of that it would be it would be a toss up as to whether the the liberal establishment the liberals whatever you want to call them the liberal impulse in mm. the country whether it would try to restore some sense of normalcy after yeah. the last 5 years or whether it would continue and they're just continuing mm. they've they've been fully broken and and it's not that they're committed to positions because they never laid it out they're committed to undermining particular positions without having one of their own and they're committed to opposing certain personalities like I don't know an Owen Jones or an Ash Sarkar or someone like that. Mm. That's that's their politics now. Mm. You can see it even in the, the the kind of muted and kind of well this is an everyday policy response to I was like Boris is going to spend a load of money to plant a load of trees. Now that was like a key doctrinal moment in the election of it's impossible to plant trees, but now yeah. it's become just a normal, yep. a, a normal thing. They've they've fully absorbed everything that everything that they profess is only against particular people and particular like fragments of the of the left at certain political persuasions. Mm. It's not it's it's not about any any kind of even even kind of opposition to Boris in particular or opposition to the Tories. It's just what's happening today like, yeah it's yeah yeah um mm. yeah fuck that party yeah we shall all be joining george galloway's party oh yeah his stupid fucking did you see that logo the uh the raf logo the bad raf logo <laughs> well it's like a, it's like the raf logo but it's a um a cog yeah oh. and it's like you know if it hadn't been galloway maybe it maybe uh i i don't He's he's another. Oh, not joining Galloway's party. Galloway. <laughs> no, not joining Galloway's party. <laughs> Fucking hell. 
Speaking of grifters, I was thinking like one of the things we might start doing is let's have a, having a look back. It's been a while since the election now, so at the start of our episodes, have a little look at what one of the stars of the last election campaign, what they're up to now. You know, have they achieved yeah. their dreams? Of um... I want to relive the next, the last election campaign. I just want to relive it forever. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just saw pop it up today, where what's what, what what's Joe Swinson up to? Speaking of grifters, Joe Swinson. She Joe is... Swinson, you mean Joe Swinson of Joe Swinson's Liberal Democrats? Yes, <laughs> Joe Swinson's of Liberal Democrats presented by Joe Swinson. Um, <laughs> she's become a professor at a top management school because what better way to, of like making it easier to talk to the manager than training them all? Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she's got off. Um, this in the mirror. They're like, she hoped to scoop up pro EU supporters, sweep to number ten, and torpedo Brexit. In fact, her twenty-one party's twenty-one MPs were cut to just eleven, and she lost her Easter march. She see, it was the second time she had been dumped by electors in four years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's still funny. It's still funny. It wasn't all bad the last election, but um, yeah. So she's she's going to be teaching at um, the Cranfield School of Management, and the thing. That was, uh, I the think you have actually sorry. They've actually changed their name. It's uh, Joe Swinson School of Management now, <laughs> based um, in Swinsonshire. Um, Ed Davies said, "Huge congrats! Her fantastic experience as a business minister <laughs> and work on right. everything from AI to equality will be well used at Cranfield." Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's two. It's two definite complementary policy areas: AI and equality. Yeah, um, but here's the best. Think bit. about it. Skydeck was committed to diversity. <laughs> um, the dean of Cranfield School of Management. Um, this is the thing that made me really laugh. Joe Swinson's experience as a campaigner and a minister will be a real asset to her school. Only one of them is an actual asset to the school, and it's not a big one. <laughs> because do they give a shit about her being a campaigner? What campaigns has Joe Swinson succeeded at? I can't think particularly, but surely that She's if, not if she did succeed, if she uh, that's true. Brexit didn't happen because of her. Mm. Oh, that is that is a big one. Uh, I mean, presumably. Like all of those politicians, their go-to thing is, well, I worked on this campaign. And they might be very good campaigns, like, yeah. I don't know, Stella Creasy and domestic violence. It's like, yeah. yeah, of course, that's an excellent campaign. But to what extent was the unique, what was the unique element that that particular person brought as opposed yeah. to, like, in themselves, not in their role as an MP, but what, what was the unique thing that yeah. they brought other than they had a pair of hands and a brain? Yeah. You know? Well, Joe Swinson brings that natural razzmatazz that a leader of the Lib Dems brings to anything that she joins. And her being a former minister, all the connections she made in the Tory government that I'm sure will always listen to her, she's definitely not, you know, ignored by everyone who's ever met her, apart from squirrels who fear her. Oh, God, I forgot about the squirrels thing. Yeah, exactly. Is she near a forest? I don't know. Cranfield. I have no idea what. Cranfield. Oh, Cranfield University, Bedfordshire. Mm-hmm. Plenty. There's probably there's probably plenty of squirrels there. That's where she's gone. Though. Shit. That explains a lot. <laughs> I hate this. I hate this fucking <laughs> um, this trend of like post politics Lib Dems. Mm-hmm. Like, you should not like it's Nick Clegg and now it's Joe Swinson going into kind of high paying corporate jobs within the techno structure. To use I don't that think Joe Swinson's phrase. job's going to be that well paying. Um, it's not as well paying as um, Nick Clegg's one. You be oh maybe. Um, Schools of management tend to be well-paid, though, don't they? Because it's not like they're a social science. Um, but I hate this. Like, they should be doing traditional Lib Dem things when they retire. So, like, becoming part of the campaign to save the wetlands. Which wetlands? 
all of them. All any the of wetlands. Them. Any they're of just them. they're just passionate about moisture. <laughs> or you know the traditional Lib Dem retirement options, which include you know hiding historic cases of child sex abuse <laughs> and hiding the fact that you tried to have your lover murdered. <laughs> why can't I just hate change? Is is all I'm saying. <laughs> you just want the old Lib Dems back. I just want the old Lib Dems back. <laughs> Can't believe it. I'm crying now. Oh, you know, well, maybe we'll all vote for Lib Dems when radical Leila Moran becomes leader. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I wonder where the Lib Dems... Actually, I mean, I am interested in, where the, in what the Lib Dems try to do now because every surely every institutional impulse is the rabidness of which they pursued Remain politics yeah. has to have... Again, like the whole civil society being unable to go back to the way it was like the the rabidness of which they went into remain politics mm. must have left a mark must have left a really big mark like they're probably there's probably a lot of medium level party activists who are not who don't want to give that up maybe yeah. people at the top don't care maybe people at the bottom don't care but there must be a few like political spads or whatever yeah. who are, are really really gung-ho to still do this remain thing to be the party of remain so whether they go right, like they'll, they'll try and position themselves to the left of Starmer, and it's not hard to do that when you just agree with I a think, far right government. I think the smartest but, thing for them to do would be well, it depends. Like if if Leila Moran becomes leader, I could see them maybe managing to get twelve seats at the next election rather than have their eleven seats. Do I mean they could pick yeah. up some? They could pick up some soft left people, uh, people who are too young to remember being fucked over by them before, um, or people who's who, left in who's left in Labour that isn't. Like that, soft left or right that isn't going to vote Starmer. I have no idea. There's no one. There's I have no, no idea. But it's better than the other option, which is there's what no Labour lean, for They can't really Surely. lean to the right and hope to mm. outflank anyone like economic being economically right wing. It's the only thing to make them seem different. To be honest, it like is to have her. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Obviously, the sensible the sensible option is to do what Charles Kennedy did and try mm. to outflank the the Labour on the left, but. I, that isn't always like the sensible option. Isn't always the way that that those parties oh, go. Oh, and God. I can't. I just. I, I just do not. I do not see whatever uh, Joe Swinson's Lib Dems presented by Joe Swinson picked up from the 2019 general election being put down. Mm. But also, it's a dead end. It's not going anywhere. Brexit is is done. It's it's here. But you know, get used to it. Maybe they'll become a hardline rejoin party. You know, if anything, you could say that the Lib Dems are the party of stepping on rakes. <laughs> or on dogs, if uh, that court case was anything to go oh, by. Gotcha. Oh, Yeah, I saw that pro- I saw that Hugh Grant programme. <laughs> yeah. For the main bit this week, um, it's something I've really, really wanted to cover for a, a, a while. Um, this, my interest in this topic kind of started when Jeffrey Epstein was murdered last summer. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when Jeffrey Epstein was murdered last yeah. summer, uh, the news started to focus on his co-conspirators, mainly Ghislaine Maxwell. And I had no idea that Epstein was so involved with one of Robert Maxwell's children. I was like genuinely shocked. Yeah. For people who are old enough, the name Maxwell rings certain bells. Uh, specifically, Robert Maxwell. And I began thinking, like, there's a big segment of of British history in probably the 50s to the 80s that that doesn't really get raised anymore. Mm. Robert Maxwell at the time, throughout the kind of latter half of the 20th century, was a household name. He was a a totem of the image of the tycoon. He was shady, self-aggrandizing, publicly aggressive. 
he was probably a lot more well-known than Rupert Murdoch mm. um, up until the 90s. Definitely more public-facing than, say, Richard Branson, and had more of a kind of public, kind of irascible persona than Alan Sugar. Um, if tycoonism, more than capitalism as such, had a poster child, it was Maxwell. Uh, he was. It would probably be quite easy to say he was Britain's answer to Trump, um, which is a probably more accurate comparison than, say, Trump's apprentice counterpart, um, Alan Sugar. Mm. Maxwell was the constant uh, subject of constant media exposure, much of which he sought out. He was frequently on the edge of bankruptcy like Trump. Like Trump, he loved kind of vulgar, flashy um, aesthetics, loved uh, all those Doric columns. If he had ever run for prime minister, he would definitely have announced it by ascending his crystal <laughs> staircase. Yeah. Um, unlike Trump, it seems he wasn't just a totem for big business gone wrong. Um, he was a deeply complicated figure in himself, charming, infinitely imaginative, very energetic. He was also a very cruel, capricious, and ruthless man, ruthless, in fact, to the point of psychopathy. In his own way, he was a scientific and financial innovator. He was a, a labor politician. He was a friend to every major world leader and political figure you could think of, whether they liked it or not. He was also probably a spy. <laughs> um, he was probably a spook, most likely. Hmm. Um, and I just, I just about remember when he died in 1991, there was like a brief flourish of conspiracy theory spurred on by the fact that he kind of took on a lot of a lot of the liberal kind of groups of the time, specifically like Private Eye and uh, things like that. But when he died, there was this brief flourish of conspiracy spurred on by the massive collapse of his financial interests and his companies and the always persistent rumours of connections with intelligence services. Hmm. There was this kind of muted celebration from both conservatives and liberals that the man who sued Private Eye and stole millions from his own employees' pension funds had gone. But after that, it kind of disappeared. Yeah. His image and his impact seems to have vanished in a way that it didn't with, say, like Princess Diana. Mm. You know, there was no analysis of what Maxwell had meant to the UK or the world or any kind of probing into his impact on the 20th century, like what he meant. Mm. So like the ones I can think of that are kind of similar, Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi and the Soviet Union itself, probably icons of the Cold War that the kind of end of history in 1991 made inconvenient. They, they, their presences were inconvenient. I mean, I know Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein kind of died after that, but they were forgotten in a very similar way by by popular culture, something that they had been in so, so much when they yeah. were alive. His, uh, Maxwell's public life almost exactly cohered with the Cold War, uh, 1945 to 1991. And he just seems to have been buried with that era. Um, but yeah, Maxwell's early life. Um, Max, uh, Robert Maxwell was born on the 10th of June, 1923, in the village of Slatinsky Doli in Hungary. It would become Czechoslovakia, then Hungary, and it's now called Solotivno, Solotvino, located in Ukraine. He was one of seven children born to a poor Jewish family, survivors of the flight west away from Polish pogroms. His family was desperately poor. They went barefoot in the summer and shared shoes in the winter, subsisting on a staple diet of potatoes. His grandfather sold horses while his father dealt in cattle. Uh, the main kind of biography of Maxwell was done by Tom Bauer, who was notorious oh, for his biography of Corbin, which we've, yeah, which we've covered in other episodes. Um, Tom Bauer traces Maxwell recently for, for lying in that as well, didn't he? 
or did the mail? He did. I believe. I, I believe the most of the reviews said there were significant falsehoods. But even if there weren't, it, the way that Tom Bauer characterised, like say Corbin yeah. um, learning his stuff in Jamaica, yeah. suggests some kind of element of pollution. <laughs> um, it, his his biography on Maxwell is very very in depth, mm-hmm. um, and he's not unsympathetic to him. But there are just little little moments where, like, so for instance. He talks about his father. He talks about his grandfather um, dealing across the border between Hungary, Czechoslovakia, um, you know, dodging the law, maybe being a bit shifty and kind of traces Maxwell's nefarious to that Hmm. nefarious, later nefariousness to his upbringing. Um, And it's just a touch of (laughs) the skills skills he used for like the skills he used in the boardroom. He learned from his father, the horse trader. Yeah. Um, in the 1910s, uh, the village, then under Hungarian control, was visited by an imperial census man who spoke German, but no Yiddish or Hebrew. Arriving at the family home, he found it impossible to pronounce the family name, thus giving them the German name Hock, meaning tall. Maxwell's father allegedly stood over six feet tall, a giant for the time, and Maxwell would stand at six foot four as an adult. Truly, truly huge man in every sense. Um, <clears throat> there is some evidence to suggest that Maxwell's mother was politically informed, uh, a believer in Zionism, socialism, and in the improvement in the condition of the Jews. Maxwell was close to his mother and would credit her with giving him his socialist and Zionist values, as well as his entrepreneurial spirit. Accepting an honorary degree later in life, he remarked on something his mother told him. Confidence, like virginity, can only be lost once. She also instilled in him a wanderlust and desire to get out of their small village and see the world. She told him that to behave and act like an Englishman is to be successful. Uh, In 1919, Slatinsky Dolly became part of the new Czechoslovakian state. The German name Hock was changed by officials from Prague to Ludwig, Maxwell adding the Czech first name Jan. Uh, Maxwell thus became Jan Ludwig Hyman Binyamin Hock, Sometimes with the name, sometimes with the name Abraham added, uh, he stopped using the name Abraham as an adult and became Jan Ludwig. He was apparently an intelligent child and a quick learner. He would eventually become fluent in eight language, although eight languages, although to what extent he was a master of those languages is something of a mystery. He apparently was put, uh, possessed a photographic memory and often throughout his life wouldn't put anything into writing. He preferred to boast that he had the kind of brain that can keep a wealth of information inside his own head. Mm-hmm. After only three years of schooling, he was unable to proceed any further as his clothes were too shabby. Instead, he used to hang around the town and learn things from the market traders there. By the time he had left Slatinsky Doli at roughly 16, the Sudetenland, a German-speaking area of Czechoslovakia, had been annexed by the Nazi state. Slatinsky Doli would later be reclaimed by Hungary in 1944. He would never see, after he left, he would never see his parents or most of his family again. Uh, They were murdered in Auschwitz after the Nazis took control of Hungary in 1944. Amongst all of the illusions, all of the exaggerations that he would put forth in later years, he would always lament his his inability to save them. His wife, Betty Maxwell, would testify. He was convinced that had he stayed at home, he could have saved the lives of his parents and younger siblings. Nothing he achieved in life would ever compensate for what he had not been able to accomplish, the rescue of his family. Maxwell had two sisters that survived the Holocaust. Uh, He located one, Sylvia, in a refugee camp after the war, and he looked after her for the rest of his life. 
it's difficult to piece together what happened to Maxwell after he left the village, as he would embellish and exaggerate the story with each new telling. Uh, for instance, he would recount a story about how he was in Budapest in December 1939 when he was asked to join the local Czech resistance force fighting the Nazis. There was no resistance force in uh, Budapest at that time as the Germans hadn't entered the city. The version he gave in 1987 on Desert Island Discs was the most kind of exaggerated and outlandish. He would claim that he had joined the Czech army and fought across Eastern Europe, retreated to the Black Sea, went to France. He added getting wounded in Orléans, then claiming that he had been captured and sentenced to death, only surviving thanks to the intervention of the French ambassador and escaping because his guard only had one arm. (laughs) (laughs) He then said he escaped and travelled via Yugoslavia, Greece, Bulgaria, Turkey, Syria and Palestine to France, where he was finally united with the Czech army. That was his telling of it. Um, It could have been true. Uh, guess what? World War Two in Central Europe, quite a crazy time, yeah, uh, to put it mildly. But there's no evidence for any of this. Yeah. Um, we only have his his testimony to go on. What is for sure is that in 1940 he was in Marseille, enlisting in the Second Regiment of the Czech Legion before sailing to Liverpool. While speaking no English, in 1941 he volunteered for the British Army's Pioneer Corps. That's basically the unarmed kind of trench diggers and, and sappers of the army. Okay. Kind of lowest lowest on the rung. Mm-hmm. Uh, he now referred now referring to himself as Jan Hock, he learned English from a woman while stationed at Sutton Coalfield. He digested English mannerisms as well, absorbing radio comedies and learning English manners, flattening out his middle European accent into a deep baritone received pronunciation accent. He had a relationship with a nurse of upper-class origins who introduced him to high society, where he learned the workings of the English aristocracy. Claiming he had German language skills and combat experience, he was recruited for the intelligence division of the North Staffordshire Regiment. He changed his name to Leslie du Maurier, du Maurier being a popular cigarette brand for the upper and middle classes at the time. So this was quite a common practice um, if you were in intelligence, uh, so that if you were captured, the Germans wouldn't know his true background. Yeah. Makes very good sense if you're a, a Jewish uh, recruit in the British Army. Leslie de Maurier um, is such a good name. It's a very good name, isn't it? It's fantastic. It is, it's, it's up there with, like, I've just finished watching the second season of um, What We Do in the Shadows. And Matt yeah. Berry's vampire character, he runs out, he leaves town and sets up in another town and gives himself an American name. Jackie Daytona. <laughs> That's very good. He's like, I'm just any English aristocrat. De Maurier. <laughs> I mean, the, the name changes are significant throughout um, mm. Maxwell's life. You know, he, he was Abraham Ludwig, then Jan Abraham Ludwig, then Jan Ludwig, Jan Hock, and now he had become Leslie de Maurier. Maxwell's name would always haunt him and became something of a barbed and running joke of his opponents. The one thing I remember, I was old enough to remember about Maxwell in popular culture. So there's an episode of Goodnight Sweetheart, mm-hmm. um, the Nicholas Lindhurst where he travels back to Second the World Nicholas War The Nicholas Lindhurst Bigamish show. Uh, yes, yeah. Um, there's an episode where he um, he goes back and he meets like Robert Maxwell when he's in the British Army, and Maxwell's there trying to find a name, and he um, picks up a can of coffee, mm. and he says, "I'll be Robert House," because the can of coffee was Maxwell House. Uh, uh, he wants his name to suggest that he's safe as houses, uh, I believe he says. Um, so along with his attempts to um, cite himself alongside the ruling classes of the day, um, 
the changing of his name is a and, and the criticism of it is kind yeah. of an echo of the that anti-Semitism that Jews are amorphous figures yeah. that are drawn close to to power and they they couldn't be trusted. Yeah. In what was actually an extremely sensible tactic and something that he was kind of forced into. Yeah. Uh, it seems a bit yeah was a bit a bit much. Uh, he Maxwell was present in the second wave of Normandy landings and became a sniper and an interrogator, referring to himself in interrogations as Leslie Jones, again, to kind of hide his mm-hmm. true identity, which was Leslie du Maurier, which was to hide his fake identity, which was, <laughs> yeah, Jan Ludwig. Um, his official war record shows a pattern of bravery. Um, it was documented on one occasion under a German counterattack that drove the British back. Maxwell could be seen gesticulating and shouting, go back and pump bullets into those jerrys or I'll turn my machine gun on you. <laughs> um, when a mortar exploded, leaving a young soldier paralysed with That does fear, sound like English Maxwell... courage, to be fair. <laughs> Maxwell picked him up, ran with him on his shoulder to a nearby cellar where he left him to be treated. Um, Maxwell also appears to have shown signs of the ruthlessness that he became known for uh, later on. Uh, in a letter to his wife, uh, dated the 3rd of April, he said, I had... Some dated 3rd of April 1945 he said I had a very amusing day yesterday I sent one of the Germans to go and fetch the mayor of the town one hour later he came back saying the soldiers will surrender and the white flag was put up so we marched off but as soon as we marched off a German tank opened fire on us luckily he missed so I shot the mayor and withdrew <laughs> um, and I, I don't know if how true this is but apparently allegedly before he died Maxwell may have been the discreet subject of a war crimes tribunal huh. for shooting a civilian huh. um, obviously his death completely cut yeah. that short but uh, yeah he did well enough to be promoted to second lieutenant and the officer corps where his army uh, his commander took him aside and told him that neither du Maurier nor Jones was a suitable name for an officer or a gentleman he assumed the name Ian Robert Maxwell, Ian being the anglicisation of Jan, and Maxwell sounding more Scottish gentry, mm. so suitable for a commissioned officer. Mm. At this point, he was still barely 21. <laughs> Christ. So he's been through all of this stuff, and he's, yeah, just, just left his 20s. Um, at the end of the war, Maxwell was an interrogator at Spandau Prison in Berlin. Um, speaking eight languages, speaking Russian, speaking German, uh, speaking Czech, obviously, and English, uh, was very, very handy for this kind of thing. He learned from an Abwehr intelligence officer that Britain had fed false information to the free French forces, deliberately misleading some French soldiers into occupied France, where they were captured and tortured by the Gestapo. This was in order to make sure that the false information about the Normandy landes was disseminated within Nazi intelligence. Um, Yeah. Uh, He then went on to the Control Commission, which was responsible for the managing of the occupied German economy. Uh, He became the censor of the first licensed newspaper in the British sector of Berlin and became involved in trading and juggling newsprint and other paper supplies. Here he learned kind of something about bartering and seemed to have learned that information was power. He learned how information could be turned into into money and power. Um, It is known in this period that he induced a Czech officer for information on his missing sisters by supplying him with petrol. Uh, following his demobilization in 1947, he became a British citizen and went into business, establishing an import-export business and entering the world of scientific publishing that would he would, would dominate his life for most of, most of his business career. Mm. Um, after the war, British scientific publishing was still largely ad hoc, the pursuit of a few 
um, kind of gentleman scientists and largely run under the auspices of a few constantly broke companies and the Royal Society. What's more, the war had cut off the UK from one of the scientific powerhouses of the world, Germany. Before the war, German science had been the most advanced in Europe, but with the war, it had been completely demolished. Um, British science needed professionalisation, and the British government sought to improve the flow of scientific knowledge by setting up uh, a commission to try and improve partnership and try and gain knowledge from the, the try and get German scientists to to contribute to British science. Mm -hmm. While still working for the Control Commission, Maxwell had met Dr. Ferdinand Springer, a German publisher who had survived the Third Reich despite being Jewish. Uh, he was the owner of Springer Verlag, a publishing firm close to bankruptcy. Maxwell became managing director of British pub publisher Butterworths under this scheme that offered to distribute Springer's journals uh, abroad. As with everything with Robert Maxwell, this will become increasingly common. The commercial side is just one aspect of the story, and I've chosen this bit to kind of introduce the other major element that would define Maxwell's life, his intelligence links. It was thought for a long time that Maxwell was a self-made man. Uh, that he had come across these contacts on his own initiative, perhaps a bit, you know, shady about his role in the control commission, mm -hmm. but basically his own skills. It became apparent as MI6 resources retired and began to write their memoirs that Maxwell was bankrolled by the nascent MI6. Um, British intelligence had virtually no presence in Eastern Europe and wanted access to Russian scientific <clears throat> research and to safeguard the German nuclear scientists left in Germany, uh, also to provide a route for Soviet scientists defecting to the West, a number of SOE um, operatives, that's the Special Operations Executive, a wartime sabotage and undercover department that would, would become eventually absorbed into MI6 after the war, uh, a load of SOE officers set up Butterworth Scientific Publications. The idea was that Maxwell would be funded to establish links with a Russian publishing house, which he did. For this purpose, he was loaned £30,000, over half a million pounds in today's money, by Charles Hambro's bank. Charles Hambro was a merchant banker who had headed SOE operations in various theatres during the war. They hired Dr. Paul Rosebaud, a metallurgist who, who passed Nazi nuclear secrets to the British during the war, to head the merged Butterworth Springer venture. He knew most of the top scientists from his years with Springer and was smuggled out of Germany by MI6. Hmm. Anne Dove, Maxwell's, Maxwell's secretary during the early years, worked for SOE during the war. Count Vanden Heuvel, uh, an MI6 officer stationed in Switzerland, arranged deals for the company. Butterworth's directors, John Whitlock and Hugh Quennell, were ex-SOE. Hmm. Um, on the commercial side, Butterworths abandoned the project uh, in 1951 and Maxwell bought them out, paying £430,000 in today's money for their shares. He and Paul Rosebaud renamed the venture Pergamon Press after the ancient Greek city. Maxwell eventually eased Rosebaud out in the late 50s, giving the main scientific mind from the venture a paltry £2,500 for his work. Uh, it might seem an unglamorous start. Yeah. But um, scientific publishing is currently now one of the most profitable um, ventures in the world. Elseva, one of the biggest publishers, achieved a higher profit margin in 2010 than Apple, Google or Microsoft. Oh. Maxwell's kind of reason for getting into this market is because of the huge gap he had seen. The war had shattered the connecting tissues of communications of the old imperial world, but had also accelerated the importance of science dramatically. Um, Japanese scientific scientists reforming themselves in the post-war period were so desperate to get international attention that they gave Maxwell 
the right to the rights to the publication of their results for free. Hmm. He essentially got that content for free that he could then charge for around the world. Um, and Maxwell turned scientific publishing from a niche gentlemanly interest into a competitive commercial market. You didn't need to be scientifically minded to identify an area of research that wasn't served by a journal, mm. gather some scientists in that field, kind of flatter them by the promise of giving them their own journal to edit, yeah. and then selling it, selling it out there. Um, while scientists would complain that he was flooding the market, manipulating and applying PR to what was a scholarly and non-commercial pursuit, Maxwell saw that there was no limit to what states and their education systems, universities and institutions would pay for the most recent scientific research. If another speciously topicked journal appeared, they just added to the subscription and let the state foot the bill. It's the same racket as happens today. Government-funded scientists create research, which is published in journals, to be bought by the same government to put into university libraries. Um, wars on cancer, nuclear programs, space programs, geoengineering, genetics, agriculture, chemical engineering, plastics, molecular biologies were all big business in the post-war period. And all of that research was up for the taking. No government could afford to fall behind. It was a beautiful setup to make money. Like mm. scientists weren't just lone alchemists or kind of inventors in their garages. They were highly prized state assets. Um, by 1955, Pergamon was publishing 50 journals. Maxwell always gave his titles grand names. A particular favorite was the International Journal of. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. He also started out to branch into other areas of research. Um, Peter Ashby, a VP at Pergamon, said Oxford, uh, Oxford Polytechnic, now Oxford Brooks, started a department of hospitality with a chef. They found out who the head of department was, and boom, International Journal of Hospitality Management. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was no way to swap easily swap out journals once you were subscribed because there's no comparable product. Yeah. You can't just drop one, pick up something similar. Everything held its price, and by 1985 much later in our story, Pergamon had like a 47% profit margin, Fuck. which is just ludicrous. Yeah. Um, in those early years, Maxwell was everywhere. He was the first traveller to clock up a million air miles for the British Overseas Aviation Corporation. <laughs> he sought to capitalise on the relationships, particularly ones he'd made in the Soviet Union. Now, whether he did this separately from MI6 or at their request, whether he was given a broad brief, whether he was specifically ordered to target people, uh, we don't know. Um, either a possible, either it was his like business interests or spy interests, mm -hmm. either potentials are possible. It was probably both, a bit of both. It was, was almost unknown for a Western businessman to have the access Maxwell had behind the Iron Curtain. Um, certainly rumours circulated that he was a KGB agent, and indeed he was treated like a celebrity whenever he went east, even staying in the hallowed room 107 of the National Hotel in Moscow, where Lenin stayed after he arrived from St. Petersburg during the revolution. The official KGB line where Maxwell was concerned was, he's all right, according to uh, certain, <laughs> certain defectors and, and sources. Sorry, I'm just like that official designation. Yeah, he's all right. Yeah, he's all right. <laughs> he's all right. Um, he knew people in the state publishing organization in the academy of sciences he would become close with multiple soviet leaders starting with khrushchev who he spoke to personally on the subject of western copyright law uh this, again the soviets either played along um at kgb insistence to culti cultivate maxwell as an agent of influence uh to young people an agent of influence it's like an influencer but communist um <laughs> 
whether it was an, as, a, as an agent or as an ideological tool to publish science in the West and prove that the Soviet system was superior, either could be true. Both probably were true. Hmm. He was a businessman and a spy. You know, the Soviets did try and uh, take him on as an agent, but also they just used him as a businessman. Yeah, it's 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 very difficult. It's it's these these years where kind of. Some of my research on Maxwell led me to most of the podcasts about it are from like, you know, Eric Garner mm-hmm. and people like that, people like Russiagate liberals mm-hmm. who think that once you work for someone once yeah. in a kind of shady way, you're an agent, you're a fully paid up agent and you believe yeah. in everything. And it's like, that's not the way spycraft works. Spies, like the, the kind of clandestine world is full of interested bystanders and people who are making money off it. Yeah, like they don't stop being human beings and become kind of a a rigid purveyor of that system's values or objectives. Yeah, it's that's the easiest way of explaining it in a kind of in, in a in a kind of human way. Yeah. Um, it was also during the fifties that Maxwell established the first of many family trusts in Liechtenstein, which in turn owned a series of private companies in New York. This practice, which Maxwell maintained until the end of his life, was the compartmentalization of information and power. No one knew everything except him. All that data stored in that big photographic memory that he had. Uh, when he was back in London, he bought a former Fuller's bottling plant on the Marylebone Road and turned it into his headquarters, calling it Maxwell House. I'm not joking. He genuinely <laughs> called it Maxwell House, which up until a few years ago was like a popular instant coffee brand um, for yeah. those who are too young to not know what Maxwell House was. Um, he moved the Pergamon operation from London, London to Headington Hill Hall in Oxford, a huge estate that he would lease off Oxford Council that he would call home for the rest of his life. Uh, he would call it the best council house in England. Um, a little bit about his his family life. Um, he met his wife, Elizabeth Maynard, uh, in a silk merchant family in liberated Paris in 1944. She's always described as a very upright, elegant woman with a strict moral code from her uh, Protestant upbringing. He was at that time tall, handsome, and according to her, the only allied officer who didn't immediately pounce on me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Together, they had nine children over 16 years, Michael, Philip, Anne, Christine, Isabel, Corinne, Ian, Kevin, and Ghislaine. Uh, His first child, Michael, died after six years in a coma after a car crash. Their third daughter, Corinne, died of leukemia shortly after her third birthday. Betty Maxwell would often describe having so many children as an attempt on his part to recreate the family he had lost in the Holocaust. Mm. Uh, Their relationship was very complicated. Um, Maxwell had very firm ideas on how a wife should behave. Um, From a letter he sent her, Batuska, my love, you you most certainly have made big strides towards becoming the perfect partner through the things you have done, like washing my clothes or darning my socks. Although by themselves they may seem trivial and matter of fact, do not be deceived by that because they constitute the demonstration of the love we have for each other. And to me, they are of the highest value for without them, our love could not live. (laughs) Betty Maxwell would write later that he would constantly revert to the same old theme that I did not look after his material needs to a standard he considered acceptable and was therefore incapable of ensuring his happiness. Sometimes there will be a button missing on a shirt or I would forget his evening shirt studs or black tie when I packed his bag. He would complain that his cupboards were not impeccably tidy or that I hadn't got his summer clothes out early enough. What he wanted me to do was assist, bolster, and serve him and the children. Um, 
And for Betty Maxwell, uh, Robert came first. When he wanted her to campaign with him in his parliamentary period, the children were packed off to the grandparents in France for six months so that Betty could devote her full time and energy to canvassing for her husband. Uh, Maxwell was abusive towards his children, to put it lightly. Uh, he was a brutal disciplinarian who would frequently beat them. The writer Eleanor Berry recalled a conversation with the nine-year-old Ghislaine, who was expecting a prearranged hiding from her father. Quote, Daddy has a series of things lined up in a row, she told Berry. There's a riding crop with a swish to it, another straight riding crop, and a few shoehorns. He always asks me to choose which one I want. Fuck. The torture was also psychological. Um, there was a, a weekly ritual that on Sunday dinner he would persecute his children until the, he reduced them to tears. This happened week by week for years. Oh. He restricted his daughter from bringing home boyfriends, and even in adulthood, none of his children were allowed to marry unless he approved of their partners, even going so far as to ban his family from going to the wedding of his eldest son, Philip. He eventually relented, but his need for the control always manifested itself, whether it was in his business life or in his personal life. Um, even Ghislaine, Maxwell's favourite, was not exempt uh, from this kind As of you abuse. you can tell by her, uh, she, but she's the only one with a fancy name. Yeah. Um, she was, yeah, she was his favourite. He named the, uh, the yacht, uh, his, his yacht after her. It was called the Lady Ghislaine. Hmm. Um, but she, when she was a child, she would go into his study at Headington Hill Hall, give him a big kiss, say, hello, Dad, and Maxwell would just say, bloody stupid woman, fuck off. And she would go off in tears. Um, he did have, he was a serial adulterer. Uh, it may not surprise you to find, um, despite demanding this kind of level of loyalty from his wife and his mm -hmm. children, he had constant women. I mean, to, to put it misogynistically, he had women on tap, especially later in life. Um, when he entered Parliament, he stated that he preferred having women to men, saying, I can't get on with men. Men like to have individuality. Women can come become an extension of the boss. Mm. He would later expand on this, saying, when women do have power, they rarely know how to use it. He had been raised in a majority female household, with his strong and intellectually minded mother being a strong influence. And it can't have been an, a, a, a coincidence that him losing his family at such a, long, a, a young age and in such a manner and then surrounding himself by almost proxy proxy measures of trying to re reintegrate that and, and re-cohere that family unit mm. but it never being the original one that he, yeah. he couldn't save that has to have huge psychological implications for you doesn't mm. it um, and you know, having those women who you could never replace, and who were who were the greatest, and who were the best, every other woman comes up short. I yeah. mean, um, he had an affair with Andrea Martin, um, his secretary, and when he found out she was also having an affair with the Mirror's foreign editor, Nick Davies, had her phone phones bugged, and he shouted at her until she cried. Mm. <laughs> God. Um, and I mean, it wasn't, although he was a charming person, his physical appearance wasn't, you know, that great. Like later in life, uh, he stood about six foot four and was nearly 20 stone by the end of his life. He would eat copious quantities of food and booze, sometimes two or three meals worth in one sitting. One tale has a journalist invited to Maxwell's place for Sunday lunch. Maxwell, as the paterfamilias, stands at the end of the table to carve a huge joint of beef. Maxwell carves and serves a single slice of beef onto each guest's plate. Sitting down, he then picks up the rest of the joint in his hands and eats it. <laughs> okay, that just, that just sounds awesome. 
and he would eat, he yeah he he would eat like that yeah um oh you've pretty much done that is, yeah uh it's nothing compared to his toilet habits uh he would often leave the toilet door open in his office so that visitors would be greeted by the sounds of the enormous maxwell on the toilet um, <laughs> again his mate his maids, Juliet and Elsa, revealed that Maxwell didn't flush the toilet oh. and used fl- face flannels to wipe instead of toilet roll. Whoa. They also recounted that most mornings the bed would be soiled, as were his underpants. What the fuck? <laughs> because he's a rich man. This is how rich men live. <laughs> oh, how could you not have... How could you, would you not, if you had all the money in the world... If you had millions and millions of pounds... <laughs> no, I would not sleep would... <laughs> in my own shit. <laughs> I just like... The, it's like that thing from earlier on of, like, um, that his mum said about um, to be, like, an Englishman is to, like, be successful. Yeah. And it's like, so <laughs> yeah. he made, so he modelled himself off Henry VIII. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like Henry VIII... <laughs> Um, despite these odious personal habits, um, even late into life, by all accounts, he possessed an abundance of charisma. Uh, one woman who worked with him for several years said he was incredibly attractive. I found myself being seduced by him in a very particular way. He was very aware of you as a woman. He always commented on what you wore and he was very witty. He could pun in five languages and he liked to have secret jokes. He was a man to whom you couldn't say no. That sounds very creepy uncle, actually. It does. (laughs) It does. Um, it's, it's like it's like oh, he had a way about him. He always complimented what you were wearing, yeah. and you know when he's falling out of his shitty bed. <laughs> when he was rubbing his ass because they were flayed raw by the mouldering shit stuck in his clothes, he always said a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Even Kevin's wife uh, Pandora, who Maxwell had objected to him marrying, um, testified that she. Even though she she truly hated him, she just couldn't dislike him in person. Mm. Uh, she said he was charismatic and is an irresistible force. I've seen him with tears running down his cheeks so he couldn't finish his joke. He was very good at giving his undivided attention, a very direct way of looking at you, and he ca- could be very kind. As I say, he was a serial adulterer. Um, so much so. Sorry, that's that very telling almost... that. Could be very kind. Yeah. That's the yeah. kind of thing you say about someone oh, who yeah. is very rarely nice. Yeah. Um, it goes without saying, almost to the point that I'm probably not going to mention it in the rest of the narrative, mm-hmm. that he was a serial adulterer. Just assume that at any point in this narrative, he has women brought to him. Yeah, I guess. okay. Um, he did stay with uh, Betty Maxwell, his wife. Um, he periodically reconciled with her until 1990. Um Betty would run Headington Hill Hall like a guest house for him and his business for over 50 years. Maxwell would helicopter in after a day's work and expect everything to be perfect. He would frequently abandon her in the middle of social functions or even holidays, once abandoning her in the middle of a safari in Kenya. Um, He would treat her rudely in front of guests, even at official functions. He would not hesitate to tell her to fuck off in public. As her 70th birthday approached, the children contacted their father and pleaded with him to attend a birthday party for her at the Dorchester Hotel in London. He finally arrived late, kissed Betty, made a speech, and left. Betty was left in tears. Oh. 
she confessed to him that her dream was that when he retired, they would live out their lives in the French countryside. She had, he had said his only interest in living in France was if he could own the country. When she looked at him in disbelief, <laughs> when she looked at him in disbelief, he had told her it was about time she understood English humour. She had lived in England for like 40 years at that point. The following day, he summoned her to his office in Maxwell House asking for a divorce. She had 24 hours to present him with a list of her terms and conditions, all he would agree to of the dozens of properties, of fortunes, bank accounts. All he would agree to was a share of eight days a year on their yacht, the Lady Gislaine. Um, Betty would constantly make excuses for him. Um, she would testify that he was riddled with guilt over marrying a Christian when his Jewish family were dead, or that the death of his son Michael after a six-year coma sustained in a car accident changed him. There were other excuses that the experience of the war left him numb, that he had to be hard. But truthfully, he seems to not have any distinction between his business practices and his personal life. Mm. His family existed to sustain his public life, a fake family at that. And as that, his public life got larger over the years, his family seemed less important unless it could serve the Robert Maxwell story. So Maxwell had always told his fellow soldiers when working in Berlin at the end of the war that he wanted to be rich and he wanted to be in politics. He wanted to be uh, an MP. Maxwell went into half of this in 1959, embarking on a political career. He campaigned for the Labour Party in a bright red Land Rover, getting elected to the Buckingham seat in 1964. He's, <laughs> He's like, I'm a socialist, so red. But Buckinghamshire, so Land Rover. Mm-hmm. At the time, interestingly, um, one of the breakdowns of Buckingham, although, yeah, it's hunting and shooting country, um, there is a... Sh- it was still a kind of... Um, Oh, what do you call it? It was a seat on the knife edge between Tories and Labour. Um, there swing was seat. big kind of, big kind of ra- yeah, swing seat. Um, big kind of railway works. Um, quite a lot of smaller industrial enterprises that you know mm. had workers in them. So mm. the Labour Party was not as out of Buckingham as as you might think. Um, he said he stood for the Labour Party partially as a testament to his mother's socialism, um, but probably because, more because, as his secretary Anne Dove put it, the Tories wouldn't have him. Yeah. He loved conservatives throughout his life. Hang on a minute. Uh, I was m- told that the left were the only anti-Semitic ones. <laughs> oh, wait. Um, he loved conservative figures throughout his life. Um, Harold Macmillan, um, whose family Maxwell had actually crossed when he bought then bankrupted the Simpkins Marshall book publisher in the 1950s, um, when he was prime minister, had presided over a commercial boom which enraptured Maxwell. He didn't care for trade unions and had a huge staff turnover, but he was a foreign-born parvenu and he had personally crossed Harold Macmillan. Um, so there was no way he could stand for the Tories. Despite driving around in a Rolls-Royce with personalised number plates and with peacocks on his mansion lawn, he chose to stand for Labour. Um, <laughs> to be fair, he stood in North that's Buck- like, I, I you know, don't hear the word parvenu enough, but that's like pretty parvenu-y. <laughs> oh, peacocks yeah. on yeah. the lawn. <laughs> Um, he went to the he went to a couple of constituency parties to stand for Labour at first, but he actually found one that would accept him in North Buckinghamshire. Um, he probably wasn't a member of Labour in 1959 when he approached the local party, but he assured them that he was an active supporter. He'd been an active supporter for years. Um, he was foreign, rich, and lived in a mansion, but he turned his natural speaking abilities on and got elected. 
promising that he had set promising Labour Party members that he had sent a nuclear disarmament program to President Eisenhower and Premier Khrushchev that they should put their atomic bombs under the trust of the UN. <laughs> um, he lost the seat in 1959. Um, but was elected in 1964 on the back of Harold Wilson's technocratic sweeping away of the old guard. Maxwell, as a renowned science publisher, was well-placed to be consider considered part of this new Britain, uh, as Maxwell would regard himself to be key to the multiple new Britons to come. Hmm. When people challenged him on his foreignness, he rebutted with, I'm as British as Prince Philip, which in fairness, <laughs> yeah. um, he is. <laughs> um he did not enjoy his time as an MP. Uh, the author, Russell Davis, argued that it brought him close to the xenophobia and anti-Semitism of the British people, and particularly of the establishment itself. His maiden speech was the first of the new parliamentary session and lasted three times as long as everyone else. He introduced himself as the nation's prime scientific publisher. Over the next few days, he would boast of having got in first to get, deliver his maiden speech and would repeatedly stand up, interrupt speeches and shout jibes until the Tory Edward Ducan jibed at him. I have never heard anyone make so many speeches as he has in the last few days. He complained that the Maxwell complained that the printing of the common voting lists was too slow, that the Tories cooked the books and a suggestion that all Labour MPs should contribute 10% of their salaries to the Labour Party. A great idea in a party that counted ex-workers and quite a lot of not-millionaires among yeah. its rank and file. Labour ministers bristled at his impetuousness and lack of reserve. One quipped, let's just be thankful that Bob waited until the Queen sat down. It wasn't the content of his speeches, which were pretty standard centre-left stuff, to be honest, making industry efficient, eliminating waste, you know, being a proper scientific mm. society. Um, it was his manner that riled them, the ambitious immigrant devoid of all tact and grace that they all feared he would be when he came into Parliament. He was re-elected in 1966 with an even larger majority, but yet again he was not invited to become a minister, as he thought he should. He let it after he was silently and subtly told that he would never be a minister. Uh, he let it be known that he made himself unavailable for junior office, not because I am big-headed, but because I have considerable commitments to Pergamon and to our export drive. Um, and I have not been long enough in Parliament to deserve senior office. Therefore, you can rest assured that the result of this massive win for Labour will be that I shall once again be able to devote the bulk of my time to Pergamon. Um, he was made chairman of the House Catering Subcommittee, which is a low enough position almost to register as a calculated insult. Um, certainly, Maxwell did respond as if it was. Um, so if you know, like the dining rooms of the Commons are subsidised. Mm -hmm. They, of course, run at a loss. A loss. Uh, you subsidise the food and drink and they're mostly lawyers and aristos. They're used to the best. Yeah. Um, whether out of financial probity or malice, I'm not sure, uh, he fired a large number of staff and lowered the quality of the food. The, <laughs> shit he, the shit he got personally, privately, must have been worth the numerous questions in Parliament about why oeuf anglais, anglais was no longer on the menu or why fresh milk had been replaced by powdered milk. <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. <clears throat> and hilariously, he really twisted the knife by selling the entire parliamentary wine cellar at bargain prices mostly to himself and his friends <laughs> then reselling what he didn't drink at market rates <laughs> okay that's a good bit though. That's which good. That, that kind of owns that yeah. is pretty fucking cool <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, during his time in Parliament, um, he tried to make a mark, um, but really couldn't. Um, he latched on to the I'm Backing Britain campaign. If you mm -hmm. remember, we did an episode about that mm. two years ago, three years mm. ago, I don't know, can't remember. Um, he latched on to the I'm Backing Britain campaign to boost domestic consum consumption, starting his own Think British, Buy British campaign. It launched him as a national television figure. Uh, he launched his own newspaper advertisements called 100 Uncranky Ways You Can Help Britain, <laughs> including the suggestion that children should not drink their free school milk to <laughs> save the country money. Uh, what's more, the names of famous supporters he had listed on his adverts had not given their consent. Amazing. Indeed, most didn't know they were on it. It was also rich... Uh, asking people to buy British coming from a tycoon who had his books printed in Eastern Europe because it was cheaper. Um, all of these kind of stunts, all of this activity, all of this attempt to put himself out there to project his own personality means he had gotten famous, but he'd gotten famous as an object of ridicule. Hmm. Um, his more serious business in Parliament... Um, in 1968, he made a speech to Parliament on the crackdown on Czech protesters during the Prague Spring by the Warsaw Pact countries. Uh, being born in Czechoslovakia, obviously he felt he had a unique insight into the issue. He urged that while individuals should be free to cancel or, or boycott, cancel their orders or boycott the Soviets, the government's position of detente should remain undisturbed. It was an odd speech, kind of principled in its way, but not at all the kind of moderate tone that anyone expected from the aggressive Maxwell. Mm. And what may have had something to do with it is that he made this speech on the 26th of August, and in May of that year had gone on yet another excursion to Russia, and he met with KGB chief Yuri Andropov, who would be the premier in the future. According to Soviet intelligence sources, the KGB made special note of his visa application. A GRU, that's military intelligence, separate from the KGB, was uh, a GRU officer was asked to meet a British businessman, unnamed at the time, who had signed an undertaking in Berlin during the war to help if the KGB required. The results of the meeting with Andropov were classified to only three pairs of eyes, the Soviet president, the KGB chairman, and the head of the KGB's foreign intelligence directive. Now, Tom Bauer notes these facts, um, giving you an obvious kind of mm. un unstated conclusion. Mm -hmm. We will get into more of Maxwell's intelligence career, which will get way murkier um, mm. in the future. But Maxwell was an opportunist. Um, was it possible for a man who was capitalist to an almost molecular degree? Uh, was it possible for a man like that to work with the state socialist system, his ideological enemy? Yeah, it absolutely was. Was it above Maxwell to mediate a political speech to placate future potential business interests? Yeah, of course it was. <laughs> of course he would do that. Notions of loyalty and betrayal were absorbed in Maxwell's worldview to rotating around himself. He had the confidence. He had the good ideas. What was good for him um, was good for everyone else. Why shouldn't he be trusted to cross those dangerous lines? Mm. Um with the Epstein affair coming at the exact same time as all kinds of Russia conspiracies again again in vogue, when words like agent and compromat get thrown around until they're almost meaningless, as I've said previously, either can be true or both. And in Maxwell's world, it was usually both. Um, so back to his business career. Um, by 1968, Maxwell... His political careers, his political ambitions were largely over. He was never going to get ministerial office. He was never going to rise any higher than an MP. He, he'd already nicked the wine. He'd already nicked the wine. There was nothing left for him to do. Um, 
He announced he would not be standing for re-election whenever the next election was. He proclaimed he would not be standing for re-election during the next general election because he had another big iron in the fire. He was trying to buy the News of the World mm. newspaper. Uh, Pergamon was booming in 1968. Um, the prices of its shares had doubled and its assets had tripled. Um, while he was still an MP, he had already successfully, unsuccessfully tried to bid on the Daily Herald, a part TUC-owned paper that would eventually become the Sun. Um, the News of the World was operated by the Carr family, who controlled 27% of the shares. They had run the paper since 1891, and it was headed by the chairman, Sir William Carr. Uh, William Carr had been the chairman of the group for 16 years, and his opulent lifestyle, which included personal golf courses, uh, and his alcoholism had earned him the name Pissing Billy. He was invariably drunk by half ten every morning. Um, Delicious. It's great, isn't it? It, it, it? There's so many little bits. When when you've got a story like this about a, a strutting young entrepreneur taking on the old families of Britain, there's yeah. always, like, a dude who, like... No, he's drunk seven days a week. He's like 56 years old and he's dying, but he is drunk. He has been drunk every day of his life since he was 18. He is worth 70 million pounds. Yeah. You've got, you got this guy who's, who's like completely like pissing himself drunk by midday with his private golf courses in competition with Robert Maxwell still wiping the shit off himself from sleeping. His sleep soiling. <laughs> Um, a disgruntled cousin of the Carr family, Professor Derek Jackson, offered his 25% of News of the World shares for sale. The remaining 48% of shares were held by 28 different people. Maxwell offered £26 million for control of News of the World. Uh, at the time, William Carr was bedridden with a heart condition, but he was resolutely opposed to the Maxwell takeover alongside longtime editor Stafford Summerfield. I imagine because um, of anti-Semitism. <laughs> <laughs> like barely conscious um, in a bed dying of like everything wrong with him just saying like that he's somehow racially pure <laughs> if um, I know my English aristocracy that is <laughs> Stafford Summerfield would take his opposition to the Maxwell takeover to the News of the World um, editorial saying I believe that Mr Maxwell is interested in power and money there is nothing wrong with that but it is not everything he would further the dog whistles by saying, why do I think it would be a good thing if this paper, which I know has your respect, loyalty and affection, a newspaper which I know is as British as roast beef and pudding, does not fall into the hands of Mr. Robert Maxwell, formerly known as La Jan Ludwig Hock. Because this is a British paper run by British people, let's keep it that way. It was a barely concealed anti-Semitic dog whistle. Um, there were plenty of reasons to oppose Maxwell. The fear of Maxwell as a socialist taking control of a right-wing paper, hmm. um, of a powerful, unscrupulous man running roughshod over the paper's impartiality. Maxwell had already made enough enemies for this not to be necessary. Um, business partners he'd screwed over. He had garnered a reputation as an unscrupulous, if energetic, industrialist. Um, he had even been personally denied a stake in buying the British Printing Corporation. But this was next to nothing to the threat of a foreigner having control over a British paper, of making a point of principle to oppose him for his identity, for who he was. One story about Carr says that when his banker approached him while day drinking martinis at the Savoy, <laughs> asked, what are you doing to keep that foreigner out? To Maxwell, it continued <laughs> What are you doing to stop this foreigner from buying your paper? It's like, well, I'm drunk on a Tuesday. 
<laughs> yep. I've, I've done everything I could possibly think of. From the big <laughs> book of old from the big book of old I've English tried. business practices. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to. I'm drinking in the morning. I've tried drinking at Savoy, at the Dorchester, <laughs> and nothing works. <laughs> uh, to Maxwell, it just continued the narrative that had run through his political life, that he had to fight better and dirtier to make these people accept him, because they would do anything to him. He had the right to use any means against them. Hambro's Bank, which, if you remember, had financed Maxwell's first venture, business venture, now stood alongside Carr in opposing Maxwell. They were instructed to buy News of the World shares on behalf of Carr to protect them from Maxwell, which was a clear violation of city rules that firms were not allowed to buy their own shares to frustrate a takeover bid. Toothless regulators were powerless to stop the cars gathering 48% of shares to themselves, um, which wasn't enough to guarantee control over the company, but was enough to make Maxwell's bid a lot more difficult. The city at this time operated on kind of the honour code. Um, it was only actually because of this bid that they started introducing a a more like regulated code. It still wasn't law, yeah. but it was actually written down rather than just, you know, my word is my bond, that kind of shit. Yeah. The other weapon the cars had ready was a 37-year-old Oxbridge graduate who is in many ways the absolute opposite of Maxwell in terms of his life story. This man had inherited a small newspaper from his wealthy father that he had turned into a small empire and was ready to ride to the rescues of the car of, of the cars and expand into the British market. That man, of course, was Rupert Murdoch. Mm. In return for purchasing the, the right controlling kind of chunk foreigner. of shares. Exactly. In return for purchasing the controlling chunk of shares in Carr's favour, Murdoch would purchase the balance of 3% of shares, becoming a partner in News of the World, while Carr would re retain the chairmanship and overall control. The agreement would eventually allow him to purchase 40% from a new issue of shares, thus making it impossible for Maxwell to control the company by buying new shares. And essentially, to, without getting too businessy about it, Carr had sold his company for far below what Maxwell was offering just to stop a foreigner gaining control. Jenny Diskey, in reviewing Betty Mackerel's biography in the um, London Review of Books, summed it up well. Um, she said, you might say that Rupert Murdoch isn't English either, the English un but the English understand that an Australian is nearly more nearly one of them than an upstart Jew from somewhere unpronounceable in Middle Europe can ever hope to be. In a world of commerce where ambition and greed for more than is necessary are essential and admired qualities, he just wanted to shine. But he didn't understand the underlying rules that require ambition and greed to be overlaid with acceptable evidence of breeding. When he was outmaneuvered by Murdoch and the money men in the News of the World takeover, he complained of the Norwich Union boss who switched sides. Mr. Watson threw a googly at me. Uh, Mr. Watson replied, every Englishman knows you bowl a googly. Oh, my God. Yeah. You don't hear the term um, Middle Europe enough anymore. The takeover bid became a PR war, with Murdoch's papers in Australia putting out stories about Maxwell's aggressive sales tactics and Maxwell issuing defamation writs in return. Also, Maxwell making finally... out that um, like Rupert Murdoch is like this some, some like perfect example of fucking breeding. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, he went, he went to Oxford. Yeah, um, but he you know, inherited, he's still fucking he, in, he inherited his money, but he's he's Anglo. Yeah, I'm I mean, the best way fair, I'm basing my understanding it, of Rupert Murdoch yeah. on what he's like in The Simpsons. Yeah, <laughs> it's the, it's it's literally the best thing I could. It's the best way of summing it up. Is like they're an Anglo. 
Yeah. It's Americans, yeah. Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders. You saw it in Brexit as well. Yeah. It's like they're talking about Kanzuk. Mm. And it's like, you mean white Anglos? Mm-hmm. It's very specifically racialized. Yeah. yeah. Um, Maxwell finally lost the battle for the News of the World in January 1969 when the shareholders meeting was flooded with News of the World employees hostile to Maxwell. Uh, they had been lent shares in order to attend and to vote for Carr and Murdoch's deal on the understanding they would return the shares after the meeting. Maxwell was heckled with shouts of go home as many of the attendees took their chance to vent on a socialist foreign millionaire. Hmm. This would be uh, Murdoch's first Fleet Street acquisition, followed by the newly relaunched Sun in 1969. Uh, if you remember, that was the one that Maxwell also bid, it, bid on and was refused. Carr, uh, William Carr retired as chairman due to ill health in June of 1969, <laughs> and Murdoch would oust Stafford Summerfield as. I'm just super into this 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 beautiful drunk who spent his entire yeah. life drunk, and it's like he retired due to ill health because the hangovers were getting yes. too much. He was 57. Oh. Like, genuinely, he was 57. I'm oh, telling you. Um, Murdoch would also oust longtime editor Stafford Summerfield. He of that editorial. Uh, he would oust him in February 1970. So. This particular battle was responsible for bringing Rupert Murdoch into the British market. (laughs) Um, The failure to acquire the news of the world would have even more serious repercussions for Maxwell, however. The share price of Pergamum was dependent on new acquisitions upon buying companies and extracting profits or by stripping the best bits and using them to enhance Maxwell's existing companies. Simultaneously, uh, Pergamon's share price was what allowed Maxwell to prove he had the assets to do acquisitions. Hmm. So they're dependent on each other. Uh, During the News of the World takeover, Maxwell had issued a public statement that Pergamon would earn £2 million profit in 1968. If this didn't happen, his reputation and his ability to take over companies in the future would be severely impeded. Uh, Lisco, an American conglomerate, had expressed interest in buying Pergamon. They would pay cash and provide Maxwell with a job in Lisco under its chairman, the 29-year-old Saul Steinberg. Maxwell was keen to bounce back from his failed News of the World purchase and was keen to buy the then-up-for-sale um, Sun, um, which had it failed as the Daily Herald and then had been opened by um, IPC as the Sun. Hmm. Um, Maxwell tried to buy it and... Um, Eventually, Murdoch would buy it. That's uh, the timeline there. Um, when merger talks began, uh, Leaseco started buying Pergamon shares as part of the merger process. Uh, it's a fairly standard process. They also had accountants and lawyers start going over the books, and they started to raise some very interesting and serious questions about Maxwell's finances. Pergamon was a mess of subsidiaries, offshore trusts, and affiliated companies. Pergamon itself was publicly owned, but its debts were located in Maxwell Scientific International Limited, which was privately owned by the Maxwell family. Another very similarly named Maxwell Scientific International Inc. (laughs) was privately owned by two funds in Liechtenstein, ostensibly set up for the benefit of Maxwell's sister, Branner, um, but also it's not known who actually owned that company because it's a Liechtenstein. You don't have to uh, disclose who owns it. Uh, that company bring, uh, brought Pergamon product, bought Pergamon product for sale in America. Uh, he had Robert Maxwell and Company, which distributed Pergamon products in Britain. There was Pergamon Press Incorporated, also owned from Liechtenstein, which had rights for Pergamon journals elsewhere in the West. 
what this meant was in kind of as easy terms as I can explain it, Maxwell could do things like if he had to take back stock uh, from a sale, he could dump it in a subsidiary company. The refund cost would then be to that company and wouldn't count as a deduction on Pergamon's profits, which still had the original sale on their books. Um, He could also do things like place orders from his subsidiary companies for worthless stock, and they would appear on the balance sheets as a profit. So you get a load of -of out-of-date journals, sell them to one of your companies that you technically legally don't own, sell them for 2.7 million or something, Mm. I don't know, and it shows on your balance sheets as a profit, even though nothing's changed hands. Mm. Um, All the same people were managing directors of these operations, and none of this was revealed in Maxwell's News of the World bid, which it really should have been. Yeah. Uh, upon closer inspection, it turned out that 1.1 million pounds of Pergamon sales were to one company, this uh, MSI Inc., Maxwell Scientific International Inc. Most of the purchases from this company still lay in Pergamon warehouses. Under the strict interpretation of the law, MSI Inc. was not controlled by Maxwell, even though it obviously definitely was. <laughs> um, MSI Inc. owed 800,000 pounds to Pergamon. Um, and for orders it had placed, and yet Pergamon's warehouse, when it was inspected, made no distinction as to whose stock belonged to. None of these MSI orders had even been shipped to America. Basically, Maxwell had been inflating the profits of Pergamon by placing orders from his own companies. The trust in Liechtenstein that owned all these companies um, would have to sign off on this lease code deal. Saul Steinberg, the chairman, offered to hire a private plane to bring the trustees in to vote on the offer. Maxwell pulled some papers out of his pocket, saying they gave him signed proxies to negotiate on their behalf. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this kind of chicanery was not that well understood in the late 60s. I mean, you you come to think of it as just standard now. Mm. Um, uh, I'm not even sure if it was illegal at the time. Um, Lisco, when they were examining Maxwell's books, thought he was just kind of mad. (laughs) <laughs> thought he was just madly impulsive that yeah. he was just buying a load of companies because he could say i own so and so many companies yeah but actually he was playing an incredibly risky but actually kind of genius uh scam he was running a scam on on these people it didn't affect anybody until obviously he he went in for this takeover bid hmm. this this merger bid uh an anecdote that illustrates the kind of things he was doing um Leesco's advisor, Lord Leach, was apparently playing a friendly game of late-night chess with Maxwell, but at some point found out that both Maxwell's bishops were on white squares. <laughs> if you know chess, obviously, bishops, yeah. one should always be on a black square, one should always be on a white square. But yeah. uh, Leesco wanted out of the deal and would have to go to a takeover panel in order to withdraw, like a government-run takeover panel. Hmm. Uh, the former Labour Attorney General, Lord Shawcross, cross-examined Maxwell. He got him to admit that Lisco had not acted in bad faith in pulling out of the deal, as Maxwell had alleged in a newspaper interview, but that he had indeed inflated his profits. The panel worked out a deal that Maxwell would relinquish his director position in Pergamon while remaining chairman and would not get the proposed position in Lisco. It also called for a full board of trade inquiry into the affair. Lisco essentially won and took control of Pergamon. Um, to lend the proceedings a sense of farce, Pergamon's offices were on the grounds of Maxwell's own home, so he lived 50 yards of the company he'd been expelled from. When the disputes between himself and the new owners reached boiling point, he turned off the common boiler in retaliation. <laughs> the, new, 
the new owners turned off the shared electricity supply. They both <laughs> sat in cold and darkness. He would even be seen at night rooting around in the offices. Uh, Lee's Co. posted guards there, but they were all apparently quite loyal to Maxwell. Um, this is something that you get. Uh, although he wasn't a big, he was a big fan of firing entire workforces and was not a fan of trade union demands upon him. He garnered quite a lot of loyalty from his workers. Apparently, um, mm. there's quite a lot of tales of like scientists who he had worked with refusing to work for anyone else. Huh. People who, you know, who said they would be dragged kicking and screaming before they would work for anyone else but Maxwell. Whether that's because of his largesse, yeah. his his generosity, or whether they genuinely had some kind of loyalty to the way he operated, who knows? But yeah. it is something testified by a lot of different people. Um. Lisco then moved to sue Maxwell for £22 million, more than the £18 million they had spent to buy the shares in the first place. Ultimately, there would be no merger with Lisco. There would be no purchase of the Sun newspaper. His political career was finished. He lost the Buckingham seat to the Conservatives in 1970. Um, and he was no longer in control of Pergamon. What's more, as the newspapers closed in on the true state of his companies, Maxwell had become aggressive and vicious, issuing libel writs, demanding drafts of upcoming articles, at one point calling the Sunday Times journos the forces of evil to their faces. <laughs> Fair enough, actually. Yeah, no, not, um, wrong. not wrong. He even had a legal practice, um, a legal manoeuvre named after him called Maxwellization, where the subject of an inquiry can respond to criticisms before the uh, inquiry is published based on details released to them. Uh, I believe that's what Blair did for the Chilcot Inquiry. Huh. Um, so it's still, still in place. Yeah. Ultimately, um, his companies were profitable. They were really profitable. Um, he could have waited, bided his time, built up his stores of capital. Um, but in his mind, destiny did not wait for great men. Because, I mean, where we've come so far, he's a peasant son from Czechoslovak Czechoslovakia who dodged the Holocaust, fought at Normandy, and then went back into entering the great boardrooms and parliaments of the world. By He didn't do that by playing by the rules. Mm. So as far as he was concerned, all of his interactions with the British establishment, its judges, its lawyers, its politicians, had all been to put up walls against the interloper. Mm. That was his experience of it. He's being, he's lying to himself, essentially. But he, That's not the reason why he didn't get what he wanted. But at the same time, there was an element of that. Mm. And that was the bit that would stick with him, the persecution complex. Um. The final proof of this came with the publication of the Board of Trade report that had come from the Lisco affair, summing up in a phrase that would be repeated on every new article, every documentary, and eventually every epitaph associated with Robert Maxwell. It concluded, we regret having to conclude that notwithstanding Mr. Maxwell's acknowledged abilities and energy, he is not, in our opinion, a person who can be relied on to exercise proper stewardship of a publicly quoted company. Uh, that's us for this week subscribe to us on iTunes follow us at WDT80W underscore podcast follow me at BM Bergamo follow Hewitt's Tanner Smashing and we will see you next week bye bye